Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. These were the words of the prophet Isaiah speaking of the coming Messiah. These words were written and spoken almost 730 years before the birth of Christ. And today in our third week of Advent, We will be reading from chapter two of the Gospel of Luke. But before we get started, I have a confession. Prior to coming to Red Hills Church, I had never celebrated Advent in my life. I couldn't even tell you really what it was. I'm not sure why, but the churches that I'd previously been a part of never really celebrated Advent. And so for me, I had zero experience or knowledge of it prior to arriving here. And so, for any other novices who might be in the room, um, don't be intimidated. Advent is just, it comes from a Latin word that simply means the coming or the arrival. It spans the last four Sundays leading up to Christmas Day. And it's intended to be a season of reflection and preparation where we as a church do two things. First, we look back on and celebrate the birth of Jesus and his arrival on planet Earth. And second, we look forward to his return, where he will come to judge his enemies and save his people and consummate his kingdom. Today's text is arguably one of the most well-known passages of all of Scripture At least in our country, you would be hard-pressed to find someone who wasn't at least familiar with this story, even if they have never stepped foot in a church in their entire life. But there's a danger that accompanies this level of familiarity. When something becomes too common or too familiar, it can cease to hold any real value or meaning for us. Because familiarity dampens curiosity and has the ability to harden our hearts and to deafen our ears. And it can leave in its place apathy and indifference. It can cause us to assume things that aren't actually there and it can blind us to what the text is saying. Luke chapter 2 describes the events surrounding the birth of Jesus. In casual conversation, we refer to this as the nativity or the Christmas story. 
But that's where I want to pause. There's nothing inherently wrong with story. God loves story. From Genesis through Revelation, what we find in our scripture is a singular comprehensive story that demonstrates the glory of God juxtaposed with the frailty and the weakness of his creation. And so the Bible is basically the story of redemption and reconciliation that's rooted in the love and the prevailing goodness of an almighty God. But when we use the word story, what we often mean is fable or myth or make-believe. And so for much of our culture, the Christmas story is just that. It's been relegated to the same category as any other children's story. Whether we're talking about Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny or Jack and the Beanstalk. And for us, of course, that's tragic because this isn't a fable. The first advent culminating in the nativity is at its core the beginning of the most radical rescue mission in human history. In theological terms, we call this the incarnation, and it's the central doctrine of our faith, the idea that God became flesh, that he assumed a human nature and became a man in Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God and the second person in the Trinity. Today, we're going to look at not just the birth of a child, but the sovereign plan of God, how he moved in and through his creation to redeem his people and to provide a way back into relationship with him. And as miraculous and glorious as the incarnation is, he implemented his plan using very normal, unremarkable people. But they were people of faith, they were people who knew God and trusted him, And most importantly, they were obedient. And we will learn from the first advent what God expects from his people as we await his return in the second advent. And so my challenge to you this morning is this. Set aside what you know about this story and try to look at these verses with me with fresh eyes. Amen? All right, so let's start reading. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up also from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So let's stop there. There's a lot encompassed in that, and let's break down the setup. The events here in chapter two take place about six months after what Pastor Marshall covered last week with the birth of John the Baptist. Luke begins this narrative by rooting his account in history. So he shares with us not only what happened, but he gives us context of when it happened, how it happened, and why it happened. And he starts with a Roman decree, an edict from the emperor. Prior to the events of this gospel, 
Caesar Augustus, who was the great or the grandnephew and adopted son of Julius Caesar, had successfully consolidated the Roman Empire. He had defeated Mark Antony in what was the last of the civil wars of the Roman Republic, and he was enjoying a period of relative peace for that time. And so at the end of this, he calls for a census to be taken of the entire span of the Roman Empire. And during this time, census taking was a popular tool used by leaders to maximize the taxes that a government could extract from its people. Imagine. (laughs) It doesn't matter the time, government does what government does. (laughs) But, But why does that matter? Why is Luke including this for us? Luke was considered the great historian of the New Testament, and he captured these details for a reason, not just for the sake of. You see, on one level, Joseph's journey to Bethlehem was due to the decree of a Roman emperor. But on a deeper level, Luke is communicating to his reader that even the will of Caesar is subject to the will and the purpose of God. And he reminds us that God chose to work in and through the pagan Roman government to facilitate the incarnation and to fulfill prophecy. And throughout scripture, we see this pattern of the sovereignty of God being demonstrated in his use of corrupt systems and broken people to bring about his plans. And that's something for us today to remember When we look around and we see humanity going off the rails, it's easy to worry and it's easy to wonder where God is in the mix. But the promises of God are unshakable and immovable. And no matter what it looks like, he is never wringing his hands. So Caesar calls a census and he puts our plot into motion. And from there, our focus shifts to Mary and Joseph as they prepare to make the journey from Bethlehem. Why are they making the journey? Well, we read from the text that this was Joseph's hometown. We read that he was of the house and the lineage of David. And that statement means that yes, this was part of David's genealogy, Joseph was, but also this was where his family was. This was home. So just like today, you pay your taxes where your home is. So if I'm reassigned for whatever reason, let's say to Texas on business and I'm gone for six months, during that period that I'm somewhere else, I'm still responsible for the taxes here where I live in Leon County, Florida. And so it was the same case with Joseph. And so they head to Bethlehem, Joseph and Mary, his betrothed. And on the surface, these events may look like nothing more than plot set up. But I would argue that this entire story that we read today is a character study on faith and obedience to God because each person or group that we're going to look at demonstrates faith and obedience resulting in action. For Joseph, it's first seen in Luke's description of Mary. He calls Mary his betrothed. Now betrothal is an odd word for us We don't really practice that anymore. 
The definition of betrothal is to promise by one's truth. But because we don't do that in our culture, the significance and meaning of it is, is foreign. Sometimes we try to equate it with engagement, but it's not really the same thing. Betrothal is something that can take place as much as a year or more before a marriage ceremony. But in Jewish culture, from the point that a couple is betrothed, from a legal standpoint, that woman is now the wife of the man to whom she is betrothed, legally. The details of Mary and Joseph's betrothal are not really covered in Luke, but in Matthew's gospel, we find the following account. When Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So the text says she was found with child. Now I want you to try to imagine, if you will, being in Joseph's shoes, what this must have looked and felt like to him. They're legally married, but they have not biblically consummated their marriage. And now your wife, who was not pregnant when you got betrothed, suddenly now is pregnant. And her answer to Joseph is, well, the baby's God's. <laughs> now, we can only assume between the lines of text that she explained the story to Joseph, the message that Gabriel had given her, what that meant. But by the following verses, we can surmise that Joseph didn't believe her. It was a hard pill to swallow. But we read that being a just man, he was going to quietly divorce her and move on with his life. But then this happened. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. In that moment, despite the circumstances, Joseph chose to believe God. And in that choice, he trusted the message and he obeyed what was commanded of him. As Paul says, faith produces work in our lives. And so Joseph came to Nazareth and he took his wife and together they returned home to Bethlehem. And historically, the church has placed a lot of emphasis on Mary and with good reason, but we tend to forget Joseph. The scripture doesn't say a lot about him after the birth of Jesus. Most scholars believe that Joseph probably died early in Jesus' life, leaving him as the, as the male authority in the house. But one thing we do know about Joseph is this. He raised Jesus as his own. He taught Jesus to be a craftsman, 
And he provides for us in the New Testament text with an example of adoption, which is a concept that's key to our understanding of Jesus's mission when we would come to be grafted into the family of God through Christ. And what about Mary? We've already seen the faith of Mary on display over the past two weeks. This 14-year-old girl responded to the call of God with a faith and an assurance that most of us would never be able to muster. Her response to Gabriel's message was simple. It was straightforward and it showed a wisdom and a maturity beyond her years. Mary's response to the news was, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I have three kids. All of them are in or beyond their teenage years. But that's not a statement that sounds like an average teenager. When I read this, it brings to mind the Genesis account of Abraham. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Last week, Marshall emphasized how Mary knew and understood God's word. And we read the Magnificat and examined how closely Mary's song echoed Hannah's from back in 1 Samuel. And this young woman knew God and she demonstrated a proficiency in handling scripture. And Marshall noted how in that generation, every young Jewish woman would have wondered, is it gonna be me? Could I be the one who the Messiah would come through? Well, in this story, Mary received her answer. It was her. And she rose to the occasion. People would no doubt have questioned why in the world would this nine-month pregnant woman be making a journey like this to Bethlehem? And it's not a ridiculous question. As we covered last week, the trip to Nazareth, from Nazareth to Bethlehem was not a quick jaunt. From Nazareth to Bethlehem is 90 miles. And so, if you're like me, I struggle to get a concept to what that is. But if you were to leave this building and you were to set a compass northeast and start walking, when you hit Dothan, Alabama, that's 90 miles. So that's the trip that this woman who was large with child took. And it would have been a supremely dangerous journey even if she wasn't pregnant. The trip south through Samaria involved numerous hazards for travelers. The roads were frequented by bandits and desert robbers and wild animals. And while the landscape now is very different, during that time, the Jordan River Valley provided refuge for lions, bears, wild boar. Archaeologists have even discovered in this area road signs from that time period warning travelers of the dangers along the path. And so even with the understanding that Joseph and Mary were likely traveling in a caravan with other family members, it still begs the question, why would she go then? Why would she not wait until the baby arrived? Because culturally, women weren't required to be present in a census. Under most circumstances, it was only the male head of the household that was required to register. 
I believe that it's because Mary knew God's word and that she understood her role and she understood what was happening. Because in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, we find this prophecy. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And so yes, Mary was going home with her husband, but more importantly, she was preparing to usher in the Messiah. Gabriel's message to her had been, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And all of that required only one thing of Mary. It required her faith, and it required her obedience. Now, of note, neither Joseph nor Mary were given the details of their assignments. But because they had faith, and they were able to trust God. They knew his character. And they were able to rest in his peace without having a full picture of what was going on. For them and for us, genuine faith does not require full and complete understanding. It isn't contingent on us having all the facts or the data in front of you. It's not about being in control. In fact, faith usually involves realizing how little control we actually have over anything. Faith is understanding just how finite and limited we as humans are, how vulnerable, how fallible. Faith is reaching the end of ourselves and recognizing that it's not about who you are, it's about whose you are. Because we exist for and are loved by a God whose word created the universe and whose breath gives life and whose will holds together all of existence. And in this Advent season, we reflect and remember how he condescended to enter into his creation as an infant, setting aside his power and authority to complete a task that we never could. And what I find fascinating about the nativity scene is that when the moment finally arrives, almost no detail is provided about the actual birth. Thousands of years of prophecy being fulfilled, and now Messiah is here. And this is the description that Luke gives us. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. That's it. What did the Holy Spirit intend for us to glean through this account? I think it was that the details of Jesus' birth were remarkably unremarkable. He became like us. Jesus was born into anonymity. He entered this world in humility, in poverty, a nobody. 
To accomplish his mission, he had to become like us in every way. And that meant starting from a place of complete and utter vulnerability. Paul says in Philippians, though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself in taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so the first advent emphasizes Christ's humility to pave the way for his glory in the second advent. And this morning I had originally planned to get down in the weeds and to talk about all of our traditions and how we present the nativity and what is and what isn't correct about it. But earlier this week I just reached a point and I was like, who cares? It doesn't matter if Jesus was born on December 25th. It doesn't matter if certain symbols that we use in the celebration came from other cultures or not. It doesn't matter if Mary gave birth in a house or in a barn or in a cave. None of that really matters. What matters is this. The Messiah arrived And that event was facilitated by simple obedience from regular people who lived regular lives, just like us. And at this juncture, the rest of the world had no reason to take notice of him. And that was God's design. Moving on to verse eight, our scene shifts. And in the same region, There were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And so Luke brings us from the nativity scene to a field somewhere on the outskirts of Bethlehem. And once again, we find very normal, unremarkable people just doing what they do. Shepherds watching over their flock. You know, the role of a shepherd was important and somewhat complicated in ancient Israel. There was a tension at this time in how they were viewed in society. You see, during the time of the patriarchs, shepherding was viewed as a noble occupation because in nomadic society, everyone was a shepherd. If you look through the patriarch period, all of the great men of God, they were all shepherds because they were a people who moved and you can't take crops with you. But once Israel settled into the promised land, it ceased to hold the same prominence that it once did because the people became more agrarian and farming began to displace shepherding in its appeal. And the role of the shepherd became at that time associated with the peasant and the labor class. And so by the second temple period, the religious leaders had established almost this caste system in Israel. And the occupation of shepherd was at the bottom rung of that hierarchy, making them a despised class in social circles. Some scholars say that shepherds were so ostracized in Jewish society that their testimony was not even admissible in a court. 
And so why is all of this important? Well, let's keep reading. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So these shepherds received the news that Messiah had come. But what's wrong with this? Who was it first announced to? It wasn't to the high priest. It wasn't to the Levites. It wasn't even to the wealthy and the influential in Jewish society. God chose to first announce his arrival to shepherds. The shepherd would become a symbol that Jesus associated himself with throughout his ministry. Unlike the Pharisees who used their religious position to consolidate power and to wield influence over others, the shepherd was a servant. The shepherd's life was dedicated to looking after his flock. He tended to them, he protected them, he cared for their wounds, he led them to food and water. The image of the shepherd would later be what Jesus chose as his example of what a leader should look like. One who pastors, one who cares for his flock, one who's even willing to lay down his life if need be for his sheep. And so despite their having no status in the eyes of the world, the good news of salvation came first to the outcast, to the nobody, to the sinner, and at that time, that word sinner was a technical term. It was, it was used to describe a class of despised people. And when you see that, it brings to mind the words that Paul used in describing himself to Timothy. He said, Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And in Paul, that brings about a well of praise. He says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. By first announcing the arrival of the Messiah to shepherds and not to the religious leaders or the pious, God was sending a message. In his kingdom, there are no marginalized. There are no outsiders. Jesus himself would later quote from the prophet Isaiah about himself. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's still how Jesus comes. That's always been his way. He's the father to the fatherless, 
a protector of widows. He calls tax collectors and zealots. He gives dignity to the exploited. He eats and drinks with sinners. He transforms murderers into apostles. And he stands with the broken. That is the way of the Messiah, and that is what he modeled for his bride. And if that's not our nature, if that's not what we are known for, if that's not the core of our cultural identity as a people, then I submit that we're treading on dangerous ground. And I'm not talking about our congregation of Red Hills Church. I'm talking about the church, capital C. Our defining characteristic cannot be rooted in culture wars or religious snobbery or infighting. Because at the first advent, where were the religious leaders? When Christ arrived, where were the Pharisees? Where were the Sadducees? Where were the scribes? Where were the priests? Literally and figuratively, they were asleep. And who was awake? It was the shepherds. In the darkness of night, they stood ready in quiet anonymity, alert and watching over their flock because that's who they were. Verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those whom he is pleased. I apologize, I'm in the process of losing my voice, so I'm trying to nurture it through this. Out of all of the elements of the Christmas story that our culture has fumbled, this may be one of the most egregious. In every movie and book I've seen, this scene is depicted the same. The angel comes and delivers his message and then immediately, there's a choir of angels singing a perfect Christmas cantata. But there's a problem here. If you look up the phrase, heavenly host, you will see that it has nothing to do with a choir. The meaning is very plain. The heavenly host was the army of Yahweh. These shepherds were given a glimpse into the unseen realm. And what they were witnessing was not choir practice. It was a declaration of war. Now we've all seen movies that have a depiction of a battalion of soldiers lined up. I'm not talking about modern day soldiers, I'm talking about like your Braveheart or your Sparta or you know, if you're a nerd like me, Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Where you have thousands of soldiers lined up, getting ready for war and then it starts. The thud of spear butts in the ground and that chanting of thousands of people preparing for battle. It's an intimidating and it's an awe-inspiring sight. 
This is more like what the, what the shepherds witnessed with these angels. Because the incarnation signaled the defeat of the enemy. The enemy didn't know it yet, but he would. And they knew, because what they were announcing to these shepherds was that the king had arrived. And so what that put in motion in the spiritual realm was a victory that just hadn't quite happened yet for us. And what was the message that the angels, this army of God, gave to the shepherds? Their song was this, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And now we find this message sprinkled throughout our Christmas traditions, but most of us are more accustomed to hearing the end of that stanza rendered as goodwill toward men, as it's written in the King James Version. And unfortunately, that rendering omits a crucial detail. The birth of Jesus and everything that followed, it does bring peace, but there's a stipulation. His peace is promised only to those with whom he is pleased. And if you take these words as true and real, the statement should stop you cold because the inverse is also true. To those whom God is not pleased, there will be no peace. The angels spoke of things present and things to come because they knew the mission. The shepherds were told to come and see, see a baby lying in a food trough, witness the incarnation. But the shepherds had no way of knowing that this peace the angels spoke of came at a price. Peace would require for that child a path of suffering, ending in a cross. Peace would require that God in Jesus put to death, death itself, and that peace would come through his victory. And to receive that peace, to please God, requires one thing from us, faith. The writer of Hebrews penned that without faith it is impossible to please God. There's only one way, only one way to receive peace. What began in a manger with a swaddled newborn ended with an empty tomb and a resurrected king. Leading Paul to write the words that every one of us have known and most of us uttered at some point in our salvation process. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And so getting back to our text, we'll pick up in verse 15. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And I think it's important here to note the order of events. They didn't go and look for the baby to prove what was told to them by the angels. They believed God first, and it was that belief that compelled them to go and find him. 
And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. I've always found that last verse to be a little heavy. And the swirl of activity and in the joy and the praise of the shepherds, we read that Mary treasured up what had occurred, pondering it in her heart. As a mother, this was just the beginning of her journey. She was about to embark on the path of raising up and parenting the Messiah. And in that moment, she must have felt the gravity of the road ahead, the weight of that obligation, the suffering that would be entailed, the loss that would come. But in that moment, we also see a peace and a contentment. In her faith, she trusted and obeyed God, and through that act of obedience, the hope of salvation had finally come. Emmanuel, God with us. And this quiet introspection on the part of Mary is juxtaposed with the joy and the excitement of the shepherds. They couldn't help but share what they had been told, and more importantly, what they saw with their own eyes. The scene of the nativity ends here with verse 20, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. The Advent began with a series of faith stories. A girl, given news that she had found favor with God and that she would bear a child who would be called the Son of the Most High and whose kingdom there would be no end, who embraced the news given to her and who responded in obedience. And we have a man who chose to believe God when his logic and reasoning said not to, choosing to take a young woman as his wife and to adopt as his own a child who was to be the savior of the human race. These stories are woven together by the sovereignty of God to fulfill countless prophecies of the coming Messiah written about in the scriptures. And it ends with a familiar metaphor that foreshadows the life and ministry of this child that was just born. Shepherds in search of a lamb. And when they found him, they glorified God and they made it known to others what they had experienced. God had chosen them, a despised and a marginalized people, to be the first heralds of the good news. Messiah had come. And it was because the life of the shepherd reflected the heart of God and the path of lowly humility that his son would adopt during his life on earth. Later in his life, Jesus would face scorn from the religious leaders for daring to interact with sinners. And in his response, we see a familiar symbol, a familiar analogy. 
he responded with a parable about a shepherd. In chapter 15 of Luke, Jesus said, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he had lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I am that lost sheep. You are that lost sheep. And here's the thing. Jesus is presented to us as both the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and he's also presented to us as what? The Good Shepherd. He's both. And for us, the lost lambs, the sheep of his pasture, that's significant. Because we're called to be like him. The Christian faith involves a process that we call sanctification, in which over the course of our life, God molds and shapes us to be more and more like Jesus. And so to be like Jesus is to have the heart of a shepherd. And there are other lost lambs out there waiting to be found. And with each of those lambs, when they're found, heaven rejoices. And so yes, the message of the first advent is, a child is born, come and see. But Jesus spoke plainly what we're to do in these last days. As we await the second advent, the message has shifted from come and see to go and tell, find my lost sheep. Because the rest of the Christmas story is this, Christ is returning. And when he returns, it won't be as an infant in the quiet of night. When he returns, He's coming to finish the work that the incarnation set in motion. When Jesus returns, it's going to be as John saw him in Patmos. In Revelation 19, then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. His clothed, his, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name, and the name by which he is called, is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. 
On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The first advent came during a dark time in Israel. God had not spoken to his people for 400 years. And today we again find ourselves living in dark times. But today God is not silent. As the Apostle John wrote, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. God continues to speak through his word and through his church. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, God has sent out his shepherds who once were lost sheep themselves. And he has called on us to keep watch in the night and to share what we have seen and what we have heard. And so the message of the season of Advent is go and tell. Yes, Christ has come, but he's returning, and we must be ready. As we go home and we spend time with our families, don't get lost in the traditions. Don't get lost in the familiarity of holidays and the things that have been added on. Remember what this is about. And make sure that you're bringing that light into the darkness wherever you go. Amen? Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.